Hi, I'm Susan Swain, host of C-SPAN's Q&A, where we spend an hour with nonfiction writers and historians who add context to today's news. In this episode, you'll meet theoretical physicist and cosmologist Chanda Prescott-Weinstein. She's the author of the new book, The Disordered Cosmos. In it, she talks about subatomic particles, the mysteries of the universe, and the journey she took to become one of the very few black American women to receive a Ph.D. in physics. She's an assistant professor of physics and astronomy at the University of New Hampshire. Our conversation will begin in just a moment. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, you've now published your very first book. It's called Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space-Time, and Dreams Deferred. As the title and subtitle suggest, there's a lot going on in your book. Uh, What is your goal with this project? So the goal is to give people a holistic view of the doing of particle physics and cosmology. So I wanted people to understand why particle physics and cosmology are really exciting things to study, like why I'm excited about the research that I do. But I also wanted to help people understand both people within the physics community, so my colleagues, but also people outside of it, some of the challenges that we face um, in this human enterprise of doing physics. Particle cosmologist is the profession that you are in. Can you, you, you've called yourself in the book a storyteller of the universe. So explain to me what it is that you do. Yeah, so I do a lot of different things. So I study objects from neutron stars, which are basically like skeletons of stars. They're the afterlives of the stars that we, we usually look up and see in the night sky. And I also study very large objects like galaxies, which are collections of billions of stars. And I also study dark matter, which is this substance that we're pretty sure exists. We've never seen it. We've never touched it. But we're pretty sure that it's out there. And so I do a lot of different things. All of it is in service of trying to understand the origin and evolution of space-time and everything that's inside of space-time. So uh, as I talk about in the book, I really think about the biggest questions that there are, the biggest story that there is, and that requires thinking very small from particle physics to very large galaxies. So that people understand uh, this book is, uh, is not just about the science, but also about your journey in the scientific community thus far. Uh, and so that people have a sense of your accomplishment and the challenges. How many women hold PhD in physics at this point? Um, You know, that's a good question. I actually don't know how many women. For black women, um, just in 2021, I think we're finally going to hit 100 black American women who have earned PhDs from departments of physics. And just to give that number some context, there are 2,000 PhDs granted from departments of physics in the United States every single year. And in all of history, under 100 of them so far have gone to African-American women. So the, the numbers are for, for black women are, are fairly dismal. Um, the, the rate for black women is worse than for um, white women and certain groups of Asian-American women. So we're, we're really struggling to, 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 get our, to get through the door. And the very first black woman to receive a Ph.D. in physics in the United States was Willie Hobbsmore, just in 1972. Your book is filled with people who have been inspirations to you. Uh, What about her story was inspiring? 
You know, Willie Hobbs Moore is, is a very interesting figure because she had such an interesting career. First, you know, breaking a barrier as, as the first black woman to earn a PhD in physics from the University of Michigan. And then she actually went on to work at Ford Motor Company for a really long time. And so actually a lot of, I'm just starting a project where we're um, collecting all of the publications of black women with PhDs in physics in one place to create a bibliography. So it will be easy for people to find this. This is um, the site Black Women and Gender Minorities and Physics Project that I'm just launching. And what's interesting about her in particular is that many of her publications are actually internal documents at Ford. Um, so black women in physics go in interesting directions. And I think that you know people have maybe an idea of what a physicist can be or what a physicist can do. And it's not always what the stereotype is. Like I think in some ways as a particle physicist, I might fit the stereotype because I'm closer to like Albert Einstein, which I think is what people think of when they hear theoretical physicist. But actually people do really interesting things in industry as well. And Willie Hobbs Moore was a really great example of that. I was struck in the book that you uh, described uh, the definition of a physicist as, quote, a person who gets really bugged about a question and then spends their life trying to solve it and the problems related to it. So is there a question that really bugged you that got you started on the path that you're on today? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I got really interested in theoretical physics at a pretty young age. I was 10 years old when I decided I wanted to be a theoretical physicist. And so I'm... You know, at the time, the thing that intrigued me, there were two things that intrigued me. So one was the idea that we could use math to describe the universe. I was a math nerd. I loved math. The idea that math was a language that actually had some descriptive power when it came to telling stories about the universe was really compelling for me. And so I wanted to write down a mathematical story of the universe. I think that in some sense, that was the compelling problem, was completing this thing that you know, people like Albert Einstein had had been working on. And I was particularly compelled by, I was watching Errol Morris's documentary, A Brief History of Time, about Stephen Hawking. This is how I got interested. And at some point, Stephen Hawking was talking about how at the center of a black hole, they still hadn't really worked out what happened and that this was something that Einstein had been unable to figure out. And so I was also really bugged by the idea that there were things that Einstein hadn't figured out and also excited by the idea that it was something that I could get paid to continue working on. And interestingly, you know, for me, that ended up not actually being the compelling physics problem. Like, I don't really work on black holes. Um, but I think that the idea that there were that there was a story to be told with math and that there were still problems there that hadn't been solved uh, was 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 the compelling big picture problem for me. So a couple of, of threads to follow there. First, on studying as a young person, uh, the sciences, particularly uh, and math, uh, you, you talk about uh, uh, when, uh, getting more people into the field at a very young age. If, is there anything that you would change about the way we teach math, calculus, et cetera, in high school that might inspire more people along, young people along this path? Yeah, I, you know, I think math anxiety is, is a real phenomenon. And I think that we really have to unpack why is it that certain people, by the time they get to high school, have stories about themselves and about their ability to understand math, their ability to do math? I'm, I, I find it 
completely bizarre that we have just accepted this narrative that some people are good at it and some people aren't. And that that's something that you can work out when someone's brain is still developing. And we know so much about, you know, what skills are important in science in a, in a career in science is really persistence and the, and the interest in a problem and a willingness to come back at it and, and having the tools. And so, you know, I'm not an expert on K through 12 education. That's not the, the thing that I have spent my, my career developing expertise in. But I do think that we need to unpack who is getting these messages, because even as I've gone out and had conversations with people as this book has been released and, and talking to folks, what I've noticed in particular is that women, especially women of color, particularly from groups that are traditionally marginalized in physics and math, are the most likely to say, are you sure I'll be able to understand it? They're more likely to question their ability to be part of this conversation. And that suggests to me that it's not at all about, you know, inherent skills and it's completely about what stories people are being told about themselves. Going back to your story about the <clears throat> the movie that, that inspired you as a 10-year-old, you, you describe in the book that at the age of 11, a year later, you actually wrote a letter to Stephen Hawking. Did you get a response? Yeah, I, I got a response. I wrote an email to Stephen Hawking and got a response from one of his graduate students, which, you know, in hindsight now as a professor, I'm like, why was a graduate student responding to emails? I would never have my graduate students responding to emails. Um, and I basically said, how do you become a theoretical physicist? And the graduate student said, you need to go to a top university get a bachelor's degree, then you apply to PhD programs and you get a PhD and after that you become a professor. And I'm, I, I, I wish I remembered that student's name because I'm really grateful to them for, for giving me a roadmap. I think people like me who don't have PhDs in their family I don't know what the pathway to academia is like. And that student cut through all of the, you know, the barriers that I might have faced and even understanding how to get to where I wanted to go by just laying it out for me step by step and, and telling me basically how to plan. You chose Harvard for your undergrad. So what was your pathway from that 11-year-old's advice and roadmap to Harvard? Yeah, so... As, after I got the email, I think soon after I got the email, I, I realized, okay, I need to figure out what the top schools are, and I need to figure out how I'm going to pay for college. I grew up in a single-parent household. We were, um, depending on who you talk to, if you talk to my mom, we were poor. I've always said that we were working class, but we were somewhere in, 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 in that zone. And I knew that nobody was paying for, like, my nobody in my family was paying for me to go to college. So I looked around to see what schools were good and what schools could afford to give me financial aid. And so I decided that I was either going to go to Harvard or I was going to go to Caltech. And I'm from East Los Angeles. And so Caltech was, um, you know, just down the street, but I had never been there. Uh, so to me, it was practically like a, a foreign place. And um, those were the two schools that I was choosing between when I, I finally um you know, was admitted to college because they were, I, I got into 12 schools and I could only afford three of them. And those were the top two. What about academic inspiration as you went through uh, grade school and high school? Yeah, I have to say I was truly lucky in middle school and high school, between middle school and high school, I only had two math teachers, um, Mr. Frank Wilson and Mr. Warren Buckner, and they were both incredible teachers and mentors for me. 
um, who made sure that when I got stuck, at one point my mom got really sick and my grades took a nosedive and Mr. Wilson called home and said, what can I do to help? Um, it's unfortunate that the social safety net is such that um, you know, my teachers had to make the decision personally to be involved or not involved in, in helping a, a student pull it together. Um, but I was very, very lucky that I had teachers who were very invested in my success and who made sure that at the moments when it seemed like I might stumble, that they pulled me through, including at one point, my first semester, I almost failed my first semester of calculus. I think this is a story that I don't talk about in the book. And Mr. Buckner knew that I was just distracted by normal. I was, uh, how old was I? I was 14. I was distracted by normal 14 year old teenager stuff. And so he made me start tutoring other students in order to make me practice the material because he knew I understood it and I just wasn't applying myself. So I was I was just very, very lucky to have um, teachers who were invested in me and who, who took the time with me. How uh, the, the fact that you can name individual teachers who have had such an impact on your life, how has that affected your own approach to teaching? I know the power of a teacher who can make a difference just with one conversation, um, one letter of recommendation, one moment of encouragement. Um, I think it's it's easy for us to forget the impact that we can have. And, and I come from a family of teachers. And so I, I don't think that teachers ever forget that. But I think that in the in the larger society that sometimes we forget the power that that teachers have and the and the care that is required of teachers. I was a, a student in Los Angeles Unified School District. Um, it's, I think, the, the second or third largest school district in the country. It, my classes were totally overpopulated. I was in a magnet school that was relatively highly resourced. And even there, we didn't have the resources that we needed compared to um, what I learned my classmates at Harvard had had as high school students, right? And um, so these teachers are, are managing a large number of students and, and trying to make sure that, you know, we all get there to, to, to the end, to graduation, to the successes that we want to have in life. And every single moment counts. And so I think that it taught me a lot about the importance of being a teacher who pays attention to the well-being of the students. And I think it also taught me a lot about how the system is structured um, in a way that can undercut the ability of teachers to support students. And so I, I think that that's one reason I'm, I'm such an advocate for, for public education now is because I see the impact that those teachers had on me. Well, we're talking about influences. Uh, so I read the book, and you've already mentioned her several times. This book is in some ways an ode to your mother. Um, can you talk a little bit about your mother and, uh, and why she has been such an important part of your life and the person that you've become? Yeah, I have to, I think one of the stories I, I, I tell in the book, um, maybe it's in the acknowledgments, is that my mother, um, as, as a black woman, was genuinely afraid that we would not survive the childbirth process. And, you know, back in, in 1982, when I was born, there wasn't necessarily a ton of discussion about this in, in the media, in the press. Now we know that um, maternal mortality rates, the, the infant mortality rates are higher for, for black people. And um, so I would say like the very first thing that my mom did is that she made sure that we had a midwife, a white woman who could be an advocate for her at the hospital to make sure that we survived. 
And I think that that's an important story because I think it symbolizes the level of care and investment that my mom had in every stage of making sure that I had what I needed to maximize not just my chances of survival, but that I would actually get to do things in life that brought me joy. And I'm, I think, you know, now that I've looked around and I've seen how, you know, other people have experienced parenting and, and even looking back on some of the challenges, the relationship challenges that my mom and I had at various moments, that it is such a gift that my mom was so supportive of me as a little thinker and as a little math nerd. The reason we were at that Errol Morris documentary in the first place was because Mr. Wilson had told my mother that I seemed to be really excited by the physics we were learning in class. And she knew I really liked math. I'm, I also just have to shout out my mom as being like particularly, she's like a very fashion forward person. Um, so like Margaret Prescott is always like the best dressed person at a protest. And I think in a different life, she might've been a fashion designer or like a, a fashion influencer. But she's also, it turns out, very physics fashion forward. When I was in high school, she was super excited about neutrinos. And I was like, neutrinos, whatever. Black holes are so much cooler than neutrinos. And just this week, I published uh, in, in my New Scientist column, I published an, a, an opinion piece about neutrinos because neutrinos are actually really awesome. But my mom knew that, like, I don't know, 25 years before I did. <laughs> You mentioned your mom best dressed at a protest, and you, you say that you come from a line of activists, both your mom and your grandmother. What kinds of causes were they active in promoting? Yeah, I would say I, I get the activism on both sides. My, my mother and my father are, are both political organizers. My, um, my paternal grandmother, Salma James, founded the Wages for Housework campaign in 1972. So Willie Hobbs Moore was off, uh, you know, getting her PhD in physics and breaking barriers in that way. And my grandmother, Salma, was founding a movement that I think um, you know, the ideas that she was talking about in the early 70s about recognizing that housework is work and that it's labor intensive and that society runs on it. We're now having that conversation in the middle of this pandemic about the extent that housework makes things in society go, right? Um, so my mom, my parents actually met because my mom got in involved in the Wages for Housework campaign. And that's actually how my, my parents first met. Um, so they have long been campaigners for women's rights, particularly with a focus on welfare mothers, single mothers, caretakers, um, and, and, and focusing on, on the needs of, of low-income women in a world that devalues um, low-income people. So uh, let's dig into a little bit more of the book. Uh, the first third of it really is an introduction to your science, including a chapter, I Love Quarks. Uh, and I told you before we got started, I looked at that and said, I'm not sure I can do this, <laughs> this interview with the science. But it, it, the whole point is making it accessible for people. So let's dig in a little bit. When you read your book, you can't help as a reader, but notice all the superlatives that you use about your science. Privilege, a gift, it's wonderful, it's sublime. So let's start with the biggest picture of the universe. Um, you tell us that there's a large swath in the cosmology community that now believes there may not have been a big bang at the origin of the universe. What's the emerging thinking on this, and is it testable? Yeah, these are all great questions, and I have to say that, um, you know, if you got 
10 cosmologists in the studio to answer this question, you would get between 10 and 15 answers to, to these questions. I just want to be clear that really the question that you're asking is very much on the edge of what we think we know and what where there's consensus in the community. So when we talk about whether there was a beginning to our space-time, um, we increasingly think that actually our piece of space-time may be one bubble where there are many bubbles that are constantly forming. And you know, for the people who want to Google this, I would say Google eternal inflation or you know, whatever your search engine of choice is. Um, but this eternal inflation model has really transformed the, the origin story that we were even talking about like 25 years ago, where we thought there, you know, there's one space time, there was one Big Bang. Even the way that we use Big Bang has changed. So it used to be that, you know, the general public understanding of, of the term Big Bang was really that's the moment when everything came into existence, right? Increasingly, when we talk about Big Bang, we actually mean a little bit later when particles start to form. And um, this is often termed hot Big Bang. So, you know, this, these are all examples of how like, the, the process of doing physics is a, is a very social one in some sense, that um, we're even sometimes having debates about what these terms mean, what, what, the, what these words mean. The question of whether the eternal inflation model is testable is quite contentious. Um, I think that there are ways in which it is potentially testable if we find evidence of primordial gravitational waves, which as, as you know, viewers who are science nerds may recall that we had um, you know, some false excitement about that back in 2014 with the BICEP2 incident. Um, Maybe with primordial gravitational waves, we'll be able to look for imprints of this, but it may be that we're at the edge of, with our current technologies and our current understanding of data, that we just don't know how it will be testable or if it will be testable. So is it appropriate to ask if this is a theory that is the basis of your science? Do you believe in the expanding universe as the this, this formation of the work that you do? Yes. So I think that in all of these models, the one thing that the scientific community is definitely, I would say, I've actually never seen, even in some of the like, you know, odd emails I get from amateurs who think that they have figured out what Einstein couldn't figure out. I don't think anyone's ever claimed that the universe is not expanding. So I think we're all on the same page about that. I think that these kinds of questions about whether there are multiple bubbles is really, are there multiple bubbles expanding? Um, was there an original bubble? Those, I think that those are the questions that are contentious. But the thing that we're all on the same page about is that space-time is indeed expanding. I think at this point, there, there's no question about that. And that's the basis for everything that we do. And so much of our astronomical data wouldn't make sense anymore if we assumed that it wasn't expanding. What are the implications for an expanding universe for us here on Earth? You know, there's there's the existential question there, which is, you know, at some point, the night sky is potentially going to be darker than it is now. There will be fewer stars in the sky because things will be further apart. And um, 
you know, I, I, I really want to encourage people to pick up Katie Mack's The End of Everything because she does such a fantastic job. That book just came out last year. She does such a fantastic job of thinking through like different end of universe scenarios. And this is one of the things that she discusses in the book. Um, for, for us here on Earth, you know, in, in a practical sense, what the expansion of space time means is that when we look at the sky, first of all, what we are seeing is almost in some sense like looking back into the past because there is a finite speed of light it takes photons it takes light particles of light photons time to get from distant stars and galaxies to earth and how much time it takes is actually in some sense um, determined by this expansion. So our ability to understand galaxy formation and therefore the formation of our own galaxy, our home galaxy, the Milky Way, is definitely entangled in understanding these timeline questions. Have you um, come to believe in the existence of beings in distant, galaxy, distant galaxies? I mean, the question of life on other planets. Um, have you come to a scientific conclusion about that? You know, I I feel like this is the one point, I don't think anybody would ever accuse me of being conservative in general, but I would say that this is the one point in which I am conservative, which is I haven't seen evidence for it. I haven't seen evidence against it. So I have to say I'm agnostic. I think that the the estimations that, you know, the universe is such a big place that it's likely that there could be life out there seems completely reasonable. Do I know for sure? No, I've never seen any evidence for it. I would need to see evidence for it before I could feel certain about it. It's a good time, I think, because it comes in throughout the book to mention that you're a big Star Trek fan. When we talk about distant galaxies, it's certainly an appropriate reference. What is it about the Star Trek series and the storytelling that they do that has appealed to you so much? You know, I think that Star Trek is a great place to think. I mean, I also think... As, as a franchise, it's a lot of fun. And it gives us a, a beautiful vision of the future where um, you know, the human race has become collaborative. We've worked out global warming somehow. I mean, you know, and of course the, the franchise began before we knew that global warming was an issue, but certainly in the most recent iterations, we've worked it out somehow. And so I think that Star Trek is very optimistic and it, it's always been very barrier-breaking as a franchise. Nichelle Nichols being on the show, um, you know, seeing Black people in space, I think, even that vision of the future and Black people in space, not in a highly militarized way, but as a, you know, we're just out here because we're curious and we want to learn about the universe. And I think that that's just such a beautiful vision. And I think in some ways, um, it's clear that the... I think to me anyway, that the through line in the book is really that the reason that particle physics and cosmology are compelling is because we as a species are curious. We are a storytelling species and we're curious about the story of the universe. And in some sense, that's really the message of Star Trek is that it would be great for us to be curious in a way that is peaceful and collaborative and um not focused on consumption as, as, as a primary community value. You described earlier that your particular area of focus is on dark matter and dark energy. How do they fit into this picture of the expanding universe? And what are the implications for us? 
Yeah, so it turns out that most of the matter energy content in the universe is actually not the stuff that we can see. So I've been talking a lot about looking at the night sky and seeing stars and seeing galaxies. Um, that's a very small percentage of the energy and matter content in the universe. It's about 4% of the energy matter content in the universe. So the universe is mostly what we can't see. If we're just talking about if we're talking entirely about matter and energy, most of the matter and energy in the universe is something that we call dark energy. We have no idea what it is. We think that it causes the expansion of the universe to accelerate. So if you think about when you're driving in your car and you wanna pick up speed, you hit the gas, that's accelerating. So space time is, ex the expansion of space time is accelerating right now, just like your car when you're, you're getting on the freeway, for example. And um, that's the majority of the matter energy content in the universe. If we're just talking about things that we might traditionally think of as matter, then most of the matter in the universe is something that we call dark matter. And so actually our galaxies are primarily not made of stars and dust, but are primarily made of dark matter, which is something that um, we call it dark uh, for historical reasons, it's really something that's invisible. It's clear, light goes through it, and it seems to be everywhere gravitationally, but we still haven't been able to capture it or play with it in a lab or anything like that. What are the most important scientific instruments that you use in your work? Do you use the Hubble, for example, and will the launch of the James Webb satellite, space satellite, have an impact on what you do? Yeah, so I am a theoretical physicist, and I'm like super old school theoretical physicist. So I'm what, I guess, I freak people out when I say I'm a pen and paper theorist. Even other theorists are like, you don't use pencil. I actually do use pen a lot. So I do a lot of calculations by hand. I basically do math. I'm, I have increasingly become involved in doing um, things that are related to observational astronomy. Uh, because my background is in both physics and astronomy. So I'm very involved in the Vera Rubin Observatory, Dark Energy Science Collaboration, Dark Matter Working Group. I know that's a lot of, um, we, have, we have a lot of uh, bureaucratic structures to, to get our science going, but I'm involved in the Vera Rubin Observatory, Dark Matter Working Group is the, is the primary thing. I'm, I'm also part of a proposed X-ray space telescope to NASA, Fingers crossed, we'll find out in a couple of months maybe whether we've been approved. That's the Strobax experiment. Importantly, we can't really do X-ray astronomy on the ground because thankfully the atmosphere filters out most X-rays, which is good for humans, but it's bad for X-ray astronomy. So we have to launch into space if we want to do X-ray astronomy. Um, JWST is going to be an amazing instrument. I'm not at all involved in it, and I really hope that NASA will change the name before it launches. Well, you need to explain why, because that's a theme throughout your book about naming conventions and really the history of uh, physics and, and the parameters in which people have been studying physics. So in, in the case of JWST, which is the James Webb Space Telescope, and actually I choose not to include the full name of the instrument in the book, the telescope is named after a former State Department undersecretary and eventual NASA administrator who oversaw the Apollo program. Um, so not a scientist, a, a, a government official. Um, in his previous life, before he was involved in NASA, he was actually one of the early proponents of developing psychological warfare as a Cold War tool. So in my view, he has a very complicated legacy for that reason alone. 
On top of that, it seems that he was involved in facilitating discussions that kicked off the Lavender Scare, which was a, a federal government attack on LGBT people. And as NASA administrator, he would have been responsible for implementing federal policy that um, fired LGBT people from federal civil service positions simply because of their sexual orientation or their gender identity. And in fact, the law that he was responsible for um, facilitating Senate discussions about and then eventually um, responsible for implementing at NASA uh, wasn't taken off the books until fairly recently. So this is, this is fairly recent history for us. And I don't think that that is what the next generation Hubble should be named after. So I have recently been advocating that we should name the telescope after Harriet Tubman who I think represents everything that um, we aspire to as, as a species, as, as a community of scientists, as, as a national community for those of us who are Americans, but also as a global community of humans. Um, she likely used astronomy to get herself to freedom. And I can't imagine a better homage than sending her into space to look at the stars. Who needs to be listening to your advocacy for the name change and, and are they? Where's the decision so, made? The, so in, in theory, the, the telescope has been named. Um, the NASA administrator, the, the new NASA administrator, certainly has the option of making a, a change. We're hoping that members of Congress who are involved in committees that have an impact on science are, are paying attention. Um, I, and, you know, I hope the general public is paying attention because at the end of the day, the JWST, this next generation Hubble Space Telescope, is going to radically change the way that we see the universe because for the first time, we're regularly going to get clear images of galaxies in their infancy. We're going to look back and see the beginning of these structures that have led to us. And I think that that's profound for everyone, whether you're an astronomer or not. And so I hope that everybody's really invested in whose name and whose story we attach to that effort. And, you know, my hope is that changing the name to something like the Harriet Tubman Space Telescope would send an important message about who astronomy is for and who, you know, all of these efforts belong to, which is that it's our shared heritage as, as a species, as a global community. Well, maybe that's the answer to the question, but here we are in, in Washington, and there's a lot of debate going on about the allocation of federal dollars and, and, def, and deficit and debt spending. Why is it a good investment of public money uh, in deep space exploration? Yeah, you know, I always find that, that question so interesting, and I, I think that, you know, the conversation that I want to have with the, the general public is about orders of magnitude, about the difference between billions and trillions, because I think that... You know, all of these numbers sound like really big numbers, but actually NASA is such an incredible bargain. Um, cents on the dollar, we land on Mars. Cents on the dollar, we develop this incredible telescope, we launch it into space, it goes to the, the second Lagrange point on the other side of the moon, and it unfolds multiple mirrors, and then gives us images of the beginnings of galaxies cents on the dollar. Um, when people talk about we're spending too much money on science, I want them to look at comparatively percentage wise, how much more money we are spending on things that maybe we shouldn't be spending money on. 
Um, you know, I think like a, a really good example is these anti-trans bills that are being brought up in a lot of state legislatures. And I know that members of, of Congress have been paying attention to anti-LGBT, anti-trans legislation. When I look at that, I see a waste of money because there are people who are wasting money trying to stop people from having access to their civil rights, to their human rights. The same thing with um, the, the voting law that was just passed in Georgia. So when I think about waste of resources, I'm thinking about people who are spending time and money and lots of money in advertising trying to bar people from accessing basic health care and basic voting rights. So I think when I think about waste of money, I want people to have that conversation first. So despite your obvious love, excuse me, for your field, you do tell readers in the book that there are times when you consider quitting physics, quitting science. Why is that? It's tough. And, you know, I, I would say that any workplace for a black woman is a challenging place. Any workplace for someone who is an, who is, um, you know, a gender minority who is marginalized in some way is, is going to be challenging. And I think one of the ways that physics can be particularly challenging is that there are so few of us that it's hard to find community. I don't have a lot of people who have done the things that I'm doing ahead of me where I can say, I'm stuck, I'm confused, I don't know how to do this, what do I do? So there's a lot of being on your own, there's a lot of being confused, there's a lot of people not understanding the experience that you're having. Um, There's the actual racism, there's the actual sexism, there's the actual homophobia and transphobia. And it takes a toll. And, you know, we actually don't get paid a lot of money in the academy and particularly graduate students in this country. When we talk about, like, you know, allocations of money, the way that federal funds are allocated to pay graduate students basically suppress wages for graduate students. And so graduate students are not making very much money given the contribution that they are making to science. So you're committing like six years, seven years to living fairly close to the poverty line, if not below it. And at the same time, working sometimes 50, 60 hours a week, depending on your advisor's attitude. And then if on top of all of that, you're also dealing with racism and sexism, you might just say, well, I could get paid more to be treated like this. Like, at least if I'm going to have this experience, it should be economically more comfortable for me. This sentence was striking in that regard. He wrote that during the first two years at MIT, I was the only black woman who worked for the physics department who wasn't a member of the janitorial staff. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually, you know, for, for the moment, I haven't, I, I haven't been back to MIT, particularly through the pandemic, but I, I do spend time there. And it's still the case that I have not seen a, a Black woman working in the department there, even in my time visiting. Um, and, and I think, you know, I really like my colleagues at MIT, and um, some of the, the people at MIT were really involved with me in Particles for Justice when we called for the strike for Black Lives last year. So I don't want to particularly pick on MIT, but it is worth saying that MIT may be the largest physics department in the country, and so it's notable when um, there's such a significant underrepresentation of, of, um, of, of Black women at all levels. Um, And at the same time, one thing that I want to be really clear about with that sentence is that I don't want people to walk away thinking that the janitorial staff are not important, right? Um, 
in my view, if they don't empty the garbage in my office, my office is a disaster zone and I can't get work done. And so janitorial work is actually really crucial to everything else that happens after the office gets cleaned. But I also know that in the hierarchy at MIT, that janitorial staff are for better or for worse at the bottom. During that period of your study, there was one professor, we were talking about professors who have influenced you, that you referenced who changed your life. His name is Arlie Petters. We found some video of him. I want to put that on screen so people can hear him in his own words, and then I'd like to hear how he influenced you. How many of you are feeling nervous about the classes you have to take? People, you're in a place of worship. I have an even more mischievous question. How many of you think you're a genius? Ah, let's give that daring person a round of applause, right? (laughs) When I ask how many of you are feeling nervous about the classes you have to take, I know that some of you are sitting feeling anxious, but will not raise your hand Because you know that those around you, or you may feel that those around you will perceive you in a certain way. And I know that more than one of you think you're a genius. It is precisely the internal tension between the anxiety you feel from taking on this new challenge and the confidence needed in the face of this challenge that will shape you. Is that classic from him? You know, it's so lovely to hear early, and it reminds me so much of my own personal story about, about him. So I had um, you know, two different experiences at MIT. When I was an undergraduate at Harvard, I cross-registered for classes at MIT. And then later, I came back as a, as a postdoctoral researcher, um, as, as a Martin Luther King postdoctoral fellow in the physics department. And so, you know, the story when I was talking about the janitors is really from my time as a postdoctoral fellow, which is several years after my, my time as an undergraduate. Um, when I was applying to graduate school, I wanted to apply to MIT. And I wrote to a professor in the department and said, I'm interested in joining your research group. And I mentioned a little bit about my background as as a a black student of Caribbean origin. And he said, well, you should meet this Arlie Petters, who is going to be visiting MIT next semester. And so I emailed Arlie and said, hey, I was told that I, I should meet you. And... I went out to lunch with Arlie. He took me out to lunch, and I, am, I remember we were we were at Indian Buffet. This is like a very clear memory for me. And he was asking me about my progress. And I should say that at that point, you know, I was still confident enough that I might be able to make some contributions to physics, that I was still applying to graduate school. But I had been convinced that I wasn't smart enough to do particle physics, that I wasn't smart enough to do cosmology. And unfortunately, we have this hierarchy in physics that particle theorists are considered the cream of the crop, the geniuses of the community. And I had become convinced that I didn't fit that mold. And and so he said, I'm going to be te- teaching general relativity for the graduate students at MIT this semester, you're going to take my class, right? And I said, no, I can never take that class. 
I would fail it. I would do so terribly. There's no way I can take a graduate class, much less in general relativity. And Arlie said, you will take my class. And every time you have questions, you will come to my office. And I was a senior in college at that point, And he was the only professor who had ever told me that I was to come to him when I had questions. I never had a professor who had said that to me the entire time I was at Harvard. And to have a black professor take that kind of personal interest in me, particularly someone who also shared um, Caribbean heritage and, you know, even like his accent, it's not quite like the Bajan accents that I grew up with, but it was familiar for me. Um, it was a game changer. And so I, I was just, I was laughing while I was listening to the video because I was just thinking like, yes, of course he would say, you know, do you believe that you can do it? Well, I'm just telling you that you can. I was the only undergraduate in the class. I was the only woman in the class. And going into the final exam, I had the highest grade in the class. Um, and, and that's credit to him. So while we're talking about uh, positive academic experiences, you also approach a very difficult subject in your book. It's chapter 11. And you say that you struggled for a while about whether or not to even include it. Can you tell me more about that story? You know, to write a book that grapples with how science happens, particularly and publish it in 2021, it would have been dishonest and I think irresponsible not to somehow address the fact that sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, among other forms of harassment and misconduct do occur in the scientific community. We have been having this conversation, particularly in the astronomy community, um, in public since before the Harvey Weinstein um, story broke in The New Yorker, that actually the year before Azeen Gureshi at BuzzFeed had been, had been publishing stories about uh, persistent harassers and assaulters, alleged persistent harassers and assaulters in, in the astronomy community. So we were having this conversation. Um, as I describe in, in the book, the reason that I decided to write about my own experience of rape was actually in some sense not really a choice. I was working on a discussion about dark energy and I was kind of thinking about how I, my, my experience is my first year of graduate school. I'm, you know, thinking about dark energy and I hit the moment where it's like, and then the rape happened. And so I started writing, I ended up writing this whole chapter and then sat there and looked at it. I kind of, I wrote the first draft really mostly in one sitting and looked at it and said, I don't know what to do with this. I sent it to my agent. I sent it to my editor and they were both really fantastic and said like, look, you know, you can make a decision about what you want to do with this, whether you want this to be in the book. Do you want this to be in an essay that comes out around the time that the book comes out? Everybody was really supportive. And I think at the end of the day, what convinced me is that I had a friend who was assaulted as a child who told me that when she read Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye, it gave her a vocabulary for what was happening to her and that my book might be able to do the same thing for somebody else. And I realized that maybe there was power in actually saying to people, life goes on after something like this happens. It doesn't have to collapse your universe in a way that you can't live and be a person with dreams and accomplishments. And so as, as difficult as, as the chapter is, I hope that people understand that even as it expresses a pain that I live with, that it is also optimistic about our ability to live even when terrible things like that happen to us. 
today at the University of New Hampshire, you teach both uh, particle cosmology and also gender studies. Uh, can you talk to me? I mean, that, your own story is really an example of this, but, but about the intersection of those two things for you as a professor, as an academic. Yeah, I should say that I actually haven't taught a gender studies class yet because I'm still relatively new as, as, as a faculty member. I'm, you know, I have really mixed feelings about the fact that I have come to be an expert, not just in physics and gender studies, because I think it's pretty clear, you know, just from the conversation that we've been having, that the thing I dreamed of being was a theoretical physicist. And the thing that I fought really hard to do was theoretical physics. I'm, I think if, if, if I was going to reference something here, it would be Patricia Hill Collins, who in her book, Black Feminist Thought, talks about the unique situation that Black women and academics and intellectuals find themselves in, which is that we are not only trying to do the theoretical work that we might be interested in or, you know, the esoteric work that we're interested in, like particle physics, but also we are trying to confront real world problems that are associated with our ability to get our work done. And so I found myself having to become an expert on racism and sexism and homophobia and transphobia in science um, because I needed to fight for myself. I needed to fight to make room for myself. Um, and I found that in order to feel like a person of conscience in the field, I needed to fight to make room for other people. And so, you know, my hope is that the next generation won't have to do both. Or another way of thinking about it is that my hope that the next generation of physicists, regardless of identity, will all be so aware of how the social entangles with the work that we do that no particular group subset of people like black women, like black gender minorities, will have to become experts on oppression because we will all be working together to make sure that oppression is just a thing of the past. You uh, say that your hope is not just to diversify the academy, but also to democratize it. So practically speaking, what does that mean? What does that look like? Yeah, you know, I have to say, like, one of the first things that needs to happen is that we need to restore the mission of public universities. Public universities should be free. And I believe that our lawmakers, both at the federal and the state level, need to work to restore um, public universities to our location as institutions that serve the public and are accessible to the public. So I mentioned earlier that I got into 12 universities and could only afford three of them. Five of the schools I got into were University of California campuses, and I couldn't afford one University of California campus as a, a poor working class student from Los Angeles. Um, that should not be the case that our public universities are inaccessible to low income students. So I think like in a practical sense, that's that's one issue. And, and, and in association with that, we cannot have people who are saddled for life with unmanageable, even manageable student loan payments. I was just talking with with my best friend last night, who is a UC graduate about the loans that she's still paying off. And we're almost I'm 20 years out uh, from 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 graduation from college that it's ridiculous that she's still paying. I'm so I think that, you know, in some basic sense, democratization means that 
these experiences of going and getting a college degree cannot only be for the chosen few who have the right socioeconomic circumstances, or in my case, the gall to believe that they would make it and it would be okay financially. I really like, I took a, I took a leap of faith, um, but, getting, but getting a college degree shouldn't be a leap of faith. As you're uh, going on your book tour, you're taking on conventions within the academy, within the science community that you've spent your professional life in so far. Are there risks to doing that? Sure. <laughs> I think, you know, any time you're out here talking about things that are contentious or that people feel strongly about, um, you know, there are going to be people who are upset with you. We're currently in a very interesting conversation about free speech right now where there are people who say they are for free speech, but they're also trying to pass laws that, in my view, are unconstitutional, right? Um, and, and so every time I'm like, okay, when do, when do things get to the point where someone's going to try and outlaw me talking about a reality that has been well-studied, that we know that there is racism, we know that there is sexism, we know that it impacts who is in science, we know that it impacts the way that our world works. And there are people who are so frightened, I'll say frightened, I, I don't wanna assign any any other kind of like worse reaction than that, but they're so frightened of having that conversation that they're trying to outlaw having that conversation, which I truly can't think of anything that is more um, you know, on paper anyway, un-American than, than trying to outlaw speech about injustice. Um, although I think that, you know, my activist friends would say that that's actually an incredibly, like, a, a American activity. So there's, there's a debate to be had there. I will say that I feel very well supported by my colleagues at the University of New Hampshire. In the Department of Physics and Astronomy, people have been incredibly supportive I think that even when we don't agree with each other, we understand that we're in a conversation and that this conversation is very important because the one value that we do share is that we really care about the future of this planet. And what we're talking about is the future of our species, the future of our communities and the future of our planet. So even when we don't agree, we have to continue being in that conversation in order to try and work together to get us to where we need to go. In the weeks that this book has been out, are you already seeing signs that it is engendering the kinds of conversations you hope would happen within the science community, particularly physics? Yeah, I, I would say that I think it's it's early on, but I feel really heartened by, you know, there, there are students who told me that for the first time they saw themselves in a popular science book, and that's a really powerful thing to hear. Um, it certainly makes you know, all of the effort that I put into it worth it in that sense. Um, there's a dentist who follows me on Twitter who's been kind of live tweeting his experience of reading the book. He's a white man who, um, you know, I think hadn't been exposed to a, a lot of these kinds of conversations about race and gender, at least in the way that I talk about them. And it's been really interesting reading what he has to say about his reaction that for him it's been eye-opening. And I'm you know, the other thing that I think I've really enjoyed is the people who got over their anxiety of is this book for me and actually sat down with the book came out of it saying, I now feel like physics is for me. And I think, you know, just going back to your question about democratization, um, people need to feel entitled to learn about the topic in the first place. Otherwise, we have a problem. And it seems like maybe my book is making a dent there. Again, I still think it's very early. 
my hope is that my book won't be the last one of its kind where people are telling their version of the universe through these lenses that are maybe quote non-traditional and so i i don't want to be the only voice i want to be one of many voices and if my book can and be successful enough to encourage publishers to think in that direction then i would consider that in itself to be a great success for the book well related to that we have two minutes left and you wrote that your work as a scientist would not be meaningful if you accepted the world as it is um, in the closing sections of the book, you say you don't want to just be against things, but have a vision for the future. So let's end on that. What does the future look like in your vision of how it could work? Yeah, I just want to cite Ayende Jean-Baptiste, who is the person who is being paraphrased there. Um, my vision of the future is one where Black children, Indigenous children, all children have access to a dark night sky have access to the conditions that make it easy for them to go look at a dark night sky and think about their location in the universe. And that means good housing, good health care, stable food source, people around them who love them, safe to be their gender identities, all of these things that we need to strip away the things that rob children of their childhoods so that they have a moment to just sit and be in awe of the universe and their location in it. The book is called Disordered Cosmos, A Journey into Dark Matter, Space, Time, and Dreams Deferred. Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, thank you so much for an hour-long conversation with C-SPAN. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to C-SPAN's Q&A. And subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. And while you're there, please take a minute to rate and review us. You can also send us an email about Q&A at podcasts at c-span.org. Send me your questions, your comments, or ideas. Your feedback is welcome.